Well, hey, friends. Welcome back to the Space for Faith podcast. My name is Mike Goldsworthy, and here in this space, we have conversations where we are reimagining the church for our current moment. And this is the third of three shorter podcast episodes that I'm putting out that are some of the brief content that we have from our most recent post-evangelical collective gathering that happened here in October of 2022 in Denver, Colorado. And the post-evangelical collective is a collection of pastors and artists and other church leaders who have felt ecclesiologically homeless, not really knowing where we fit in the larger church landscape, but having a sense that there's still something redemptive and beautiful about the church that we're trying to reclaim. We're not trying to dismiss the church, but our experience of it, and largely uh, our experience of it in evangelical and particularly white evangelical spaces, the experience of God in those spaces is too narrow for the experience of God that we are having, that it's wrapped up in all kinds of political things that don't make sense of our faith and sort of the breadth of belonging we think is so much bigger and more beautiful and wider than what we have experienced and so just trying to figure out like how do we make our way how do we find like-minded people and so so we've had these gatherings last year and this year and they're largely there's not a ton of content as i've said uh on our previous episodes on this there, there's just really three talks overall that reach about 15 minutes and then we have conversations so there's a lot of conversation. There's a lot of space for corporate spiritual practices. There's a like a lot of relational gathering. And the content is meant to sort of spur things on. And by the way, if this is resonating with you, if you've wanted to be a part of one of these, um, if like even, even just some of the things we're talking about here that you're like, I would love to connect with other people who are having these same kinds of conversations. We are going to be having in the spring, in spring of 2023, we're going to have some regional gatherings. It'll be smaller gatherings that will carry the same sort of ethos of this, but they're going to be spread around throughout the U.S., just short, like half day, one day sort of gatherings. So um, I'm hopeful that that uh, those of you maybe who couldn't make it to a larger couple of day gathering could make it to one of these. And if you want to make sure you're on the mailing list for that, we will have better ways to do this in the future, but for now, go to mikegoldsworthy.com and subscribe to my newsletter there, and we will put information there, and we'll have some other better ways that won't be centered around me going forward, but for now, that's the best way to do it. Uh, so this is the last, as I said, of three of these where we want to just give you um, a bit of a glimpse into the content to give you a bit of a feel for what's it like to be at one of these and so today you're going to hear from two folks. You're going to hear from Dr. Peter Choi, who did give one of our main talks. And Dr. Peter Choi is the director of the Center for Faith and Justice, who are doing, by the way, incredible work. I had him recently on the podcast and heard so much great feedback about him. But he is he's done his PhD work in early evangelicalism and just provides such a great perspective on here's where we're at, but here's what it means to move forward in faithful ways. So gave this like this talk that's it's just 15 minutes with so much good and rich content in it. So you're going to hear that from him. And then we close out 
uh, our gatherings together, the last the two gatherings that we've done, we close it out with Eucharist. We do that for a bunch of reasons, um, but the most significant for me is that that's the center point of the Christian gathering, and it's the thing that brings us together. That in the midst of like theological differences, in the midst of different lived experiences, different positionalities, different all the sorts of things that that's what brings us together. And so we have ended our time in Eucharist together. And you're going to hear Jonathan Merritt, who is a writer, particularly uh, engaging in the intersection of faith and culture. You're going to hear the short sort of, I don't know, I don't want to call it like a devotional, that I don't feel like that's right for what it was, sort of like a setup, a uh, he gave us a short talk to sort of help us to enter into our time of communion, of Eucharist together. So you're going to then get to hear that as well. But before we get into that, I'll read you just one more Instagram post from somebody who's a part of our gathering, a, a shorter one this time, to again, just try and give you a little bit of a picture if you haven't been able to be a part of what is experienced there. So this is from a woman named Becky Eichema. And Becky wrote this. She said, my spiritual home has been many places and no places, all at the same time over the past one and a half years, while serving many churches through contract leading, coaching, and searches. So Becky, uh, one of the things that she does, she's been a worship pastor at some large churches, and now one of the things she does is, is kind of pops into churches to help them, to help coach their worship pastors, to help uh, them lead worship when they need somebody to fill in, and to help find worship pastors for churches. And so she says, it's been unconventional, and I used to only color inside the lines. Over the past few days, I feel like I found more of my people. People committed to faith, Jesus, reconciliation, justice, and mutual honor. And today, I give thanks for this. So again, friends, just a little bit of a sense of what people who are coming to this are experiencing and feeling but now let's go ahead and get to spend some time listening to Dr. Peter Choi. Hi friends, it's good to be with you. Um, I just wanna say at the outset that I'm coming to you um, just to give you a sense of who is talking to you. Uh, I'm talking to you as someone who studies um, colonial American history and also who in particular looks at the rise of early evangelicalism in the 18th century, and then also uh, who works as a pastor. And so I've got five shifts as we think about what it means to be on new terrain, kind of bewildering to be in a place you've never been before, wondering about next steps. Well, five shifts that I want to commend to you for your consideration. You don't have to take these if you don't like them, but I think, uh, I hope that they at least provoke some conversation um, and some reflection. The first is this. So we're amongst evangelicals, and wherever evangelicals are gathered, there has to be at some point or another some kind of conversation about the Bebington Quadrilateral. And I want to just suggest that we might make a shift from the Bebington Quadrilateral to a new quadrilateral. For those of you who don't know, the Bebington Quadrilateral are four characteristic features of historic evangelicalism. Biblicism, conversionism, crucicentrism, activism. For several years, I tried to disrupt the narrative of the Bevington Quadrilateral by talking and writing and speaking about maybe adding a fifth element called chauvinism, 
based on sort of European civilizational and cultural chauvinism that many historians talk about when they talk about the 18th century. Well, it didn't go over very well in evangelical circles, and so I'm trying a new tact, and that is to talk about a new quadrilateral. I don't think it's possible to understand evangelicalism, especially as it rose in the 18th century without talking about empire, diaspora, slavery, and revival. You cannot understand what it means to be an, a person of evangelical faith and not understand that it's the faith of empire builders. That it's the, it's the faith of people who are crossing boundaries. And sometimes the anxiety that comes from crossing boundaries will cause you, will lead you to look down on other people, to weaponize human difference for the sake of feeling smug about yourself. That it's not possible to think about evangelicalism without really considering what it means that evangelicals were at the forefront, not only of abolition, I would say not of abolition actually, but we're at the forefront of providing theological justifications for slavery and revival. Sometimes people think revival is like, one of, like the one positive feature, but it's actually a really dysfunctional thing and lots of damage, lots of spiritual damage comes out of spirit, a spirituality that is obsessed about mountaintop experiences. And so the thing about the Bevington Quadrilateral is that there's an inadequate appreciation or reckoning with the past. And if we're really to understand how it is that we're going to move forward, we would begin to recognize that there is no repair without repentance. And it seems to me a very Christian thing to say, as I look back on my past, on my life, on the history of my people and my faith tradition, it's really important to understand the ways in which we fell short. And I think if we really made this shift, we would make a shift not only from the Bevington quadrilateral to a new quadrilateral, but we would shift from triumphalism to lament. We would begin to practice lament. The second shift is what I call a shift from a Psalm 1 theology and spirituality to a Psalm 150 theology and spirituality. Where I grew up in the evangelical church, the tradition I'm familiar with, we were really good at Psalm 1 spirituality. Psalm 1 spirituality is all about obedience. It's all about a binary division, a splitting of the world, of the moral universe, where the righteous prosper and the wicked will perish. Psalm 150 spirituality or theology takes account of all 150 psalms the lament psalms, the imprecatory psalms, the psalms that end not with praise, not with some vow or commitment to returning to a time, to better times, but psalms that say the darkness is my closest friend. Full stop. In Psalm 1 theology, God is judge. God is judge who rewards the righteous, who punishes the unrighteous. Psalm 150 spirituality says, God is the lover of our souls. Walter Brueggemann talks about a movement from obedience to praise, from duty to delight. Psalm 150, you know, when I was young, Psalm 150 was not one of my favorite psalms because it's just all words of effusive praise to God. But it's one that comes on the heels of a person who has lived through the ups and downs, through the valleys and plains of life. Cole Arthur Riley 
talks about what it means to really be a person who pursues justice. And she says that oftentimes injustice hides behind the guises, I'm paraphrasing here a little bit, but injustice hides behind the guises of ethics and morality. And what justice is really about is a protecting and affirming of dignity. And I can't help but wonder that if we were to make this shift from a Psalm 1 spirituality to a Psalm 150 spirituality, that it would also entail a movement from being obsessed with morality to being concerned for dignity, the dignity of people, upholding, protecting, affirming, dignity. The third shift is, a, is a, what I call a, a shift from Mount Carmel to Mount Horeb. And I'm going to try to be quick about this, but if you know the story of Elijah, you know uh, that Elijah on Mount Carmel is a prophet of power, strength. Things seem to be going well. He is victorious. Growing up, I didn't realize, if you look at 1 Kings 18 and 19, there's actually two mountaintop experiences for Elijah. There's a Mount Horeb experience as well. You see, Mount, Mount Carmel is about power, coercion, and violence. 850 false prophets of Baal and Asherah get put to death by the sword by Elijah. Mount Horeb, Mount Horeb is about quiet, it's about rest, it's about mystery. It's about recognizing that God is not going to show up with this kind of violent, vengeful manifestation, but instead God shows up in the quiet places. So quiet that Elijah almost missed it. And do you know, on the way to Mount Horeb, Elijah gets two things, a nap and a snack. Rest. Rest and nourishment. And if you look closely at chapter 19 in the pericope, that's like verses 1 through 8, it begins with hedev, which is the Hebrew word for sword, and it concludes with horeb, which is the mountain of God. And some of you know this, the original Hebrew would have had all the vowel points cut out. It would have been just the consonant letters, the three consonant letters. And Hedev and Horev look exactly the same. And in some ways, it's almost as if the writer of Scripture is saying, the writer of First Kings is saying, Elijah has to make that movement from Hedev, the sword, to Horev, the mountain of God. Here there's a movement from certainty. Elijah was certain on Mount Carmel. He was so certain of the rightness of his cause that he was willing to kill people for it, 850 people for it. And there's a movement from certainty now to mystery. He understands, I, I, don't, I don't get God. I don't really understand who God is. So I'm going to sit here in my despair and sulk. But what would it look like for us to make this movement from certainty to mystery? And then the fourth shift is one that we might call the shift from the focus, an inordinate focus, misinterpretation, misapplication of the Great Commission to what I call, I think it's called the quiet bewilderment. I want to call it the great bewilderment. Because how many of you know that there's actually four Gospels? But for some reason, American Christians like to harp on, get stuck on, the Gospel of Matthew. 
We don't have time to look at all four. That would be an interesting exercise as well. But if you look at the end of the Gospel of Mark, the real ending of the Gospel of Mark, it says simply, the women were trembling and afraid and they said nothing to anyone because they were terrified. And oftentimes as a young pastor, I thought, oh, this is a sign of weakness. This is a sign of failure. This is... But what if we began to think of this as a sign of strength? You see, because now, again, this is a misuse, a misapplication of Great Commission theology, but Great Commission theology basically says you are the teacher and everyone else in the world are your students. Willie Jennings talks about this. This is the, the fruit of white supremacy. You are the teacher. You're going to teach everyone in the world what the path the true life is. Okay, so this is the path of superiority. But do you realize there's a, there's a spiritual discipline at the ending of the Gospel of Mark? It's the spiritual discipline of keeping your mouth shut sometimes. Sometimes. Not always, but sometimes. It's, a, it's actually a really valuable thing. Sometimes we think about what can we add to the world to, to do the work of justice, to, 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 to usher in what God is doing, the good news, to preach the good news. But sometimes we need acts of subtraction. Less of us. That's a biblical concept, isn't it? Less of us. Less of me. More of you. And I think this would entail a, a shift as well, not only from the Great Commission to the Great Bewilderment, but from superiority, from a theology that operates out of some false assumption of our superiority, to one that recognizes the need for mutuality. That says, I'm at the end of myself and I need another to come alongside of me, to walk alongside of me, sometimes even to teach me, to show me Jesus. You know, some historians have done some really good work on this where there was a book a number of years ago came out called Christian, Christian Slavery. And one of the arguments that the historian Catherine Gerbner makes in that book is she says that before there was white supremacy, there was Protestant supremacy. And in fact, it was Protestant supremacy that gave rise to, gave vocabulary to, gave shape to white supremacy. The scholar of African-American religions, Sylvester Johnson, likes to talk about Christian supremacism. That th this notion that this is the only ideology or religion or faith or spirituality that can be left standing. That this teleology of moving towards wiping out all other religions, that there's something violent, genocidal, ethnocidal about that. And I believe that this move from superiority to mutuality is one that was really, really important for people emerging out of evangelicalism to be thinking about. The last one, and this one's a little bit different here, but a shift from the civil rights movement to, the criti to critical race theory. It's a little bit trickier, but let me try to unpack it for you this way. If we can learn, and here I'm talking about not, not the, the civil rights, the leaders, the rank and file leaders of the civil rights, civil rights movement, but I'm talking about here about sort of the way that white uh, majority American culture co-opted, appropriated, and then you, and used the story of the civil rights movement to actually further the cause of white supremacy, okay? 
And one of the things that critical race theorists began to realize in the 1970s, after the mountaintop experience of the 1950s and the 1960s, was they began to realize, oh, after all of the rhetoric, after all of the breakthroughs, after all of the policy changes, after all of the legislation, what we are left with is a segregated society, is a racist society, a racialized society. So critical race theory comes out of that, that cultural moment. After the euphoria of the 1960s, when everyone else has kind of moved on, people of color, especially black Amer Americans, began to come to grips with their great disappointment. And they realized that after the rhetoric and after all, the, all of that euphoria, what they were left with is, was business as usual. Friends, what would it look like for us to move from rhetoric to embodiment? From not just talking about the kinds of changes that we would like to make because they would make us feel better deep inside, but the kind of embodied change that would signal lasting change, that can only be accompanied by suffering, by loss, once again, by subtraction. Um, many, of us, many Christian progressives tend to get stuck at the rhetorical stage. Christian America has gotten stuck at the rhetorical stage. The shift that I'm commending to you here is one where with our bodies, with our economics, with the ways that we arrange power. It, it, so it, what it doesn't look like is simply inviting a person of color to fill the place of a leader in a white supremacist structure. But it means changing things from the inside out so that things truly look, feel, and are experienced different. A shift, a shift from rhetoric to embodiment. The last thing I'll say is that I believe that this really is the way of Jesus. Because if you think about it, Jesus was one who practiced lament. Jesus was one who prioritized dignity. Jesus was one who embraced mystery. Jesus was one, even though he didn't need to, Jesus was the one person who didn't need to, but he sought out mutuality. And Jesus endured and sometimes even enjoyed embodiment. Friends, this is not some weird, out there, heretical theology I'm commending to you. This is the way of Jesus. I hope you'll consider it, and I hope you'll have some good conversation around it. Thank you. Hi there, I am Jonathan Merritt. Um, I am a writer, I'm a preacher, I'm a literary agent, and um, it's been a gift to be here, especially in this space. I feel like in a lot of spaces like this, people like me are not welcome, and so this is really a gift. Thank you. You know, in the Southern Baptist Church, 
in which I was raised, we went to church three times a week. There was a Sunday morning service, a Sunday night service, and a Wednesday night service. We actually went to church four times a week, if you count Tuesdays, but we only stopped by church on Tuesdays long enough to have dinner in the fellowship hall before we grabbed a few addresses of so-called lost people and a stack of gospel tracts and then headed out to knock on doors. Each of the three weekly church services we had followed a predictable structure. The orchestra started to play, the robed choir entered, the congregation rose to their feet, a couple hymns would be sung, there would be a time of greeting, we'd sing a couple more hymns, and then the pinnacle of the entire church service. The preacher, dressed in a crisp suit and tie, would ascend the stairs and stand behind the pulpit to preach. This, this was the moment that we'd all been waiting for. In this church, the sermon was the center of the service. You know, some 30 years later, most evangelical churches have evolved, aesthetically at least. Choirs and orchestras have been mostly replaced by bands and worship leaders. Hymns are interspersed with more modern music. And a few pastors still dress in formal attire, but not most. But if you think about it, the structure of the service has mostly stayed the same. Everything leading up to the preacher's sermon is prologue, and everything after is epilogue. In most evangelical congregations today, the sermon is still the center of the service. Almost a decade ago, I was a teaching pastor at one of those kinds of evangelical churches outside of Atlanta, Georgia, but then I left, or rather I had to leave. You see, there's not much space in evangelical churches these days for preachers who are gay. It doesn't matter how well you can preach. So I moved my life to New York City where, after a brief period of church detox during which I spent my Sunday mornings asleep, I ventured back into the world of religious community. Only this time, I attended churches that were liturgical and sacramental. What I began to notice was, in these kinds of churches— The preacher's reflections on the scripture was still important, but the center of the service was not a sermon. It was a sacrament. It all revolved around not a pulpit, but a table. Eucharist was the center of the Christian gathering for most of our history, uh, at least until the Protestant Reformation, and specifically until the Great Awakenings when compelling preachers realized that an evocative sermon could create powerful results, like higher donations and more conversions. And if you were an exceptionally effective preacher operating in this kind of structure, it could also lead you to celebrity status, which is something, sadly, we're still seeing today. But if placing the sermon at the center of the Christian gathering may naturally lead us or spiritually form us, into people who value celebrity or are oriented towards celebrity, then we could ask this question, where might placing the sacrament at the center of the service lead us? 
in my experience at least, it leads us to community. Now, I don't mean community in the artificial way, the kind of community where you shake hands and smile in between songs with strangers. I'm talking about the mystical kind, the kind where you find yourself standing next to people who you did not choose, who you may not agree with, who may vote differently or believe differently or think differently than you do. People who standing next to you consume a mysterious meal that reminds us that the ground is always level at the foot of the cross. You know, the sermon is a cherished and important part of our heritage and our practice as Christians, and I don't want to insinuate otherwise. But as New Testament scholar N.T. Wright said, when Jesus himself wanted to explain to his disciples what his forthcoming death was all about, he didn't give them a theory. He gave them a meal. What should we do to remember you, Lord? Take and eat, he said, not stand and preach. You see, when the sermon is the center of the gathering in most of our churches, only a few of the most privileged and talented people get to participate. But when the sacrament is centered, all are welcome, all participate, all are fed and are filled. Sure, there are some churches, many of you know these kinds of churches, the kinds of churches that work hard to keep certain types of people from taking a seat at this table. I think that's a shame, a sham, because this is not the church's table. This is the Lord's table. And at the Lord's table, all who are thirsty may drink. All who are hungry may eat. All who are hurting may come with open hands to receive the mysterious grace of this meal. If Judas was welcome at the first table, then even the worst person you can imagine, even the biggest failures and fakes are welcome at this table, which means even people like us are welcome. You see, the table allows us an opportunity to stop our fighting and dividing and othering, to be grateful for the good gifts in our lives, and to remember yet again that even the people we understand the least, even the people we dislike the most, all of these people are bone and flesh and dust and divine image, just like we are. The word Eucharist originates in the first or second century. And it literally means thanksgiving. And so we turn our hearts now in prayer to the table and say, Oh God, it is a good and joyous thing to say thank you to you at all times. But now as a community of misfits and orphans and spiritual ragamuffins, we pause to give thanks for all the good gifts of our lives. We especially say thank you for the gift of your Son, anointed by the Holy Spirit to preach good news to the poor, to grant sight to the blind, to set captives free. We thank you that through his life and his death and his resurrection, you have shown us the height and the width and the depth of your almighty love. We ask now, that by the power of your Holy Spirit and according to your word, that these gifts of food and drink would become to us and for us the very body and blood of Jesus Christ, 
who on the night he was betrayed, took the bread and the cup and blessed them. After the supper, Jesus took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we welcome you, risen Christ. We pray that you would grace us with your presence as we receive this bread, that we would likewise be broken and given for the sake of our neighbors. Amen. Also, after the supper, Jesus took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we welcome you, risen Christ. We thank you for this cup, which speaks a better word than all of our hatred and our violence and our revenge and our bigotry, a cup that points us to your way of peace and forgiveness. Will you give us grace and power to embody your way as we receive this cup for the sake of our neighbors? Amen. And now I want to invite you to partake in this mysterious gift of holy communion, of holy community. If you're wondering if this meal is for you, all you have to do is remember that this is not my table and this is not the church's table. This is the Lord's table. So it's an open table. That means that anyone who feels drawn to the love that we see in Jesus Christ is welcome to receive the bread and the cup today. So let this be a gesture of your open heart to receive the capital L love of the universe. You can come when you're ready. Amen.